All right, I will wait for some people to come in. Looks like people are starting to come in now. Um, so one thing before we get going is, uh, could you let me know in the chat, which is not to be used for questions, but just let me know if the sound, like how bad is the sound? Because the AC I have, um, the only one that I can use right now is very loud. <laughs> and, um, and I'm worried that it's... Well, all right. So the good thing is this microphone is very directional. Um, so apparently it's saving me from how loud the AC is. I, I do remember one time when using the same microphone, I was recording a podcast way back in the day when I lived in Brooklyn. And I apologized in the podcast for the extremely loud fire alarm, uh, fire, fire truck sirens that were going by. And then I listened to the podcast and I couldn't hear the fire truck at all. I just heard myself apologize for it. So apparently the, the mic is, um, is saving me. All right. So, uh, Couple of ground rules before we get started. If you've if you've been here before, you know the drill. But real quickly, uh, there are two and sort of three ways to ask a question. Um, one is to raise your hand, and you can come on live on the web hand, webcam. If you raise your hand, I will pick you uh, first. And then when there are, although last time um, Zoom had changed how I see. The people who have their hand raised. So let me. I just raised my hand. Um, all right. I think I'm. Let's see. All right. Here I can see it. Okay. So if you want to jump on the webcam, you can raise your hand. Um, and then if you want to ask a question by text, please do not use the chat. Do use the QA box. Oh, let me change the settings so that. Everyone can see everyone's question and everyone can comment on everyone's question. Okay. So um, in the Q&A box, you can ask a question anonymously or with your, you know, whatever name you're using. Just be careful that uh, or keep in mind that um, eventually some of these may be turned into clips that are distributed publicly. So ask your question whatever way you're comfortable being possibly shared publicly. And then second, um, you can ask anonymously. It won't hurt you. Uh, but if there are a lot of anonymous questions, I'm going to treat them all as if they come from one, question, one person because I do try to go through everyone and make sure that I answer each person's first question before I uh, answer anyone's second question. And then if you have a bunch of questions, please ask them one at a time and ask your most important one first. Because if, you know, if time is stretched, I will go over two hours if it's needed. But you know, if we're at the two-hour point, there's a bunch of questions left. I'm going to start answering them more quickly. So if there's something that you really want to make sure gets a very good answer, um, ask it at the beginning. All right. So Anonymous asks... What would you recommend for someone who has persistent recurring SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, bloating and gas that comes back after dietary changes such as gluten, for example, gluten-free, paleo, GAPS diet, dairy-free, etc. 
and herbal antimicrobial treatments, what are possible root causes of recurring SIBO? Um, I'm not... So first of all, you might want to comment... Oh, and I, I forgot to mention before that um, if, feel free to jump in on anyone uh, anyone's uh, question by commenting on it in the Q&A box. And if someone's on the live cam, you can add something in the chat if you want to add to the discussion. Um, okay, so, so first of all, you might want to comment on your own question and just clarify what you mean by coming back after dietary changes. So are you saying that when the person goes gluten-free, it goes away, but then if they go paleo after that, it comes back? Or are you saying if they go gluten-free, it goes away, but then if they go off gluten-free, it comes back? I'm not sure what you mean by that. So I'll answer your last... And then herbal antimicrobial treatments, I assume you mean it goes away when they get the antimicrobial treatment. Are you then saying that just after the treatment is done, it comes back Regardless, or are you saying the antimicrobial treatment makes it go away, but then they change their diet from gluten-free to paleo, and now it comes back on the new diet? I'm not sure what you mean by that. So what are the possible root causes of recurring SIBO? I mean, first of all, if you didn't, if you didn't address the root cause, which antimicrobial treatments obviously are not doing, because you can kill the bacteria, but that, you know, it's, it's not like you got it in the first place because you weren't on you know, chronically taking antimicrobial treatments, obviously. Um, and so if you haven't addressed the root cause, and you know, a diet might kind of address the root cause, although it's it's not like GAPS should be the default diet for everyone. And so, you know, GAPS helps. It's not like you got it in the first place because you weren't on the GAPS diet because most people aren't on the GAPS diet. Not everyone has SIBO. Um, and also, I think it's pretty obvious that you know, highly restrictive diets, even paleo, um, are not are not some kind of obvious default template for humanity. Um, you know, on the, on the other hand, I think it, it is an obvious default for humanity that you shouldn't have access to modern junk food that didn't exist until a hundred years ago or fewer years ago than that. You know, so I, I do think you could say that. If you're constantly eating chips and pizza and ice cream, and you get SIBO, and it comes back when you re when those foods return, I do think it's kind of legit to blame it on the diet itself. You know, like I know that not everyone who eats chips, pizza, and ice cream has SIBO, but I think it's incredibly obvious that the natural human diet is not one that has any pizza, chips, and ice cream. And I'm not hating on pizza, chips, and ice cream. I I like all of those things from time to time. But I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, out of the full dietary spectrum of foods that existed 100 years ago or more, um, I think shifting around to more restrictive diets than that um, is not really addressing a root cause. Whereas getting rid of modern junk food or at least moderating it so that it's not an overwhelming preponderance of the diet might actually be a root cause. And so I think you don't have any, pro you know, if it's if it's every time I go back to seventy percent pizza and ice cream and chips, then I I think the answer is is just stop going back to pizza and ice cream and chips, and it's your fault for doing that. I, I assume you don't mean that, but I, I and I'm not trying to sound like I'm blaming people, but I'm just saying, you know, you shouldn't expect to uh, be able to eat 
mostly modern junk food, but you should expect to be able to eat uh, like you know anything in the West in a price diet without having to go on gaps. Is what I'm saying. Um, so beyond that, uh, and I, Eve, I see your hand up. I'll, I'll get you next. Uh, so beyond that. I would say the main causes for persistent SIBO are going to be either either well the most common cause I think is just like slow gut motility that is causing food to incubate in the small intestine for too long a period of time and not get cleaned out when the digestive process there is done. And that's generally a deficiency of the migrating motor complex. I think there are a number of things to consider. So first of all, I would look at thyroid health. And thyroid is a key regulator of gut motility, a positive regulator. So better thyroid status means faster gut motility and generally you and generally should protect against SIBO. Uh, another factor is bile acids. And so uh, bile acids, I mean, one of the ways that thyroid regulates gut motility is by making you make more bile acids from cholesterol. And bile acids themselves speed up gut motility. So you could have a deficiency of bile acids, uh, which could be due to a slow thyroid or could be due to some other cause. For example, maybe your cholesterol levels run too low. Obviously, if you have high cholesterol and low bile acids, you're not going to really know if you have low bile acids. Um, I guess, I guess you could. I mean, there's probably some stool tests that can kind of make an inference about it, but you're not going to know directly. Um, but you can infer it based on based on fat digestion being particularly bad among your fat digestion absorption among your digestive capacity. That could be one sign. And if your cholesterol is high, then you probably have slow thyroid. And I would, if, if your cholesterol is high and your fat digestion is bad and your gut motility is slow, um, then you probably have low thyroid. And if, and if TSH doesn't indicate that, you should get a full thyroid panel and look for something like low T3 because that's a pattern that's almost certainly a low, um, a low thyroid activity. And so, you know, you should also consider whether maybe you're on a, a, a too mu- too too restrictive, uh, too low carbohydrate of a diet, because if all your lab, if all your thyroid labs look normal, you might have like elevated free fatty acids that are interfering with thyroid function, and so you might be getting slow function of the thyroid hormone, even though the lab tests are normal, but. If your cholesterol is low and your and your signs of bile acids are low and your gut motility is low, you might just have like low cholesterol as a starting point. And so you might want to raise your cholesterol. You could try eating more eggs, more cream, more coconut oil, more liver, uh, eggs with the yolks, you know, to because of the cholesterol content. You could try those things to raise the cholesterol and try and then and thereby get better bile acid production. Um, you might want to consider whether you need more taurine or more glycine because those form salts with bile acids to bring forth their activity. 
Um, I do, you know, I've seen any one animal study that suggested that too high of a fat soluble vitamin intake might slow bile acid production by acting as a signal that you've made enough bile acids if you are indeed absorbing your fat soluble vitamins adequately. So you might want to consider whether like mega dosing fat soluble vitamins might play a role if you've ruled all those other things out. Um, you know, but all this applies. And then there are some things that stimulate the migrating motor complex, like lactobacillus and ginger. So you might want to try ginger supplementation. I think fresh ginger is best, although it can be kind of a, um, a tax on your convenience to be peeling it and cutting it up all, all the time. And ginger, fresh ginger goes moldy in the fridge kind of easily. So there are ginger supplements you could use. And then lactobacillus supplements might help. Um, those apply to SIBO that is really like late in the, in the digestive process. So if your symptoms are coming three hours after you're eating, then you probably have distal SIBO, which means it's at the end of the small intestine. If they're starting 45 minutes after you eat, you probably have proximal SIBO, meaning it's at the upper part of the small intestine towards the stomach rather than towards the colon. Similarly, if you get a SIBO test and the breath test shows that gas is being produced 45 minutes after the, glu after the sugar you take, um, then it's then it's proximal, and if it's three hours after the sugar you take, then it's distal. Um, and then, of course, proximal can go deeper, and then distal can go go higher. But if it's starting distal and moving up from the colon, then as it gets worse, you're going to see an expansion from the three hour time point to the two hour time point, and and on. Whereas if it's proximal and it's getting worse, you're going to see an expansion from like the 40, 30, 40, 45 minute mark. To the one hour mark and then and then on in that direction. So you can, you know, if it's if the SIBO's um if the SIBO's still bad at the two hour mark, but it's worse at the 45 minute mark, and then it dissipates as it goes to two hours, you know, that's that's proximal. And if it's the reverse, it's strongest towards the colon and it and it dissipates as it gets higher. <coughs> Excuse me, in terms of dissipates in terms of how much gas is being produced on the test. Um, you know, so if you're seeing it start at two out at an hour and a half and then it keeps increasing as it goes on, that's obviously distal, you know, even though the gas is showing up in the middle. Um, so if it's if it's distal, meaning towards the colon, meaning showing up late in the test, then everything I said before about clearing out the gut, I think is most is most important. Whereas if it's if it's proximal, which is less common, then it's probably from low stomach acid. And if it's low stomach acid, you want to you want to look at um, things like your salt intake. You might need more. Your energy status. Thyroid's going to regulate this as well, but diabetes, uh, adrenal dysfunction, excessive fasting, excessive caloric restriction. Um, a corollary with fatigue. And any, you could have a rare inborn error of metabolism. You might not have enough B vitamins. You might not have enough magnesium. Basically, anything that could slow ATP production. Um, and salt, not enough salt. Either of those things could be contributing to that, to low stomach acid. 
if you're overmethylating, you could be reducing your histamine production. And I, I don't think that should happen just because you're taking like methylfolate or something like that. But I think it, you know, it's possible that could be a side effect of taking SAMe. Um, and if you have, you know, if you're the type of person that swings back and forth on methylated supplements, that could be relevant. And then you could also always test it by supplementing with, with, uh, beta, beta hydrochloride as a source of hydrochloric acid or taking acidic things with your meals. Um, and then just as a general thing about digestive dysfunction, uh, you want to eat when you are upright and you want to be upright after you eat for at least a half hour, if not three hours. And I know that sounds terrible for someone who likes to like lay back and eat while watching TV and then lay down on the couch. But that... You know, I don't know if that's going to cause SIBO, but it's certainly going to make it worse and harder to heal. Um, you know, so eating, I'm not saying you want to be standing up when you eat, you know, unless it's Passover or whatever, but, but you want to eat sitting upright and then go for a walk is probably the best thing that you could do. And then stay active. Stay active um, for a couple hours. You don't have to. I'm, I'm not saying go exercise. You know, don't go swimming. But I just mean like moderate activity, like walking around and getting up and doing this and that, rather than being ready to 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 go to bed. Um, and in the off chance that you like need to eat before you go to bed, you should probably fix that. But if you must, then the, the more elevated you can sleep, the better. You know, so if you could just sleep with a couple pillows behind your head at a minimum, or even elevate your bed at an angle, uh, I, that's kind of a last resort. But, but um, you know, out of desperation, you might need to do something like that. But it's it's better to just not eat at least three hours before bed. Uh, all right. Hope that helps. RB adds this question. What do you mean by elevated free fatty acids interfering with thyroid function? Does that have to do with dietary intake of fat? I have high cholesterol, poor fat digestion, varying gut motility, but normal thyroid numbers. Um, I mean that high free fatty acids will, inter will prevent thyroid from entering cells and binding to their nuclear receptor and therefore functioning. And um, dietary intake of fat could do that in the postprandial period. But low carbohydrate intake, low calorie intake, excessive fasting would do that in general, particularly in the fasting period. Um, you know, so it it would be a combination of those things. Like if you're eating a lot of fat, but also eating a lot of carbohydrate, you're probably not going to have elevated free fatty acids, except in the postprandial period. Not in the, and. And you will even suppress those because you're going to promote fat storage of those fatty acids with the carbohydrate. All right. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Uh, Eva, I'm going to promote you to a panelist um, so that you can ask your question. Eva, how are you today? Looks like you're muted. There we go. Hello. 
Hi. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for taking our course and spending time with us. My pleasure. Uh, I do have a very simple question. All right. So hemoglobin H1C. Um, so I'm playing with a continuously glucose monitor since like 17 months. And uh, my glucose is around, the average glucose is under 100. It could be 90 for three, uh, three months. And then I try to figure something out. I can go up to 95, 97. Um, if I'm spiking, I'm spiking maybe 152, but for only five minutes or 10, let's say 10 maximum, and then goes back right how it's supposed to be. But my hemoglobin H1C, it's always coming back high. So between 5.5 and 5.6 every time. Um, the, well, so the, the, the continuous glucose monitor trumps the HbA1C uh, hands down and makes it irrelevant because the point of HbA1C is that it is a useful but imperfect marker of cumulative past glucose exposure. And you are actually completely tracking all of your glucose exposure. And so it's not, it's sort of like completely pointless to measure HbA1c if you have a continuous glucose monitor because you're using something that is an imperfect marker to try to make an inference about something where you have the exact data of. It's, um, you know, it's, it's sort of, sort of like, uh, calculated LDL cholesterol and, exact LDL cholesterol, if you had them measured in the same test and the calculated one looked bad and the, and the exact one looked good, you would ignore the calculated one because the calculation isn't perfect and, and obviously it's, it's wrong. Um, so, but the, the reason is that HbA1c is subject to two other determinants besides cumulative past glucose exposure. One is red blood cell turnover. And so if you, um, if you're, well, first of all, probably wearing a continuous glucose monitor actually increases red blood cell turnover because you're taking like little, little dips of blood all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, like if you, I don't know what the volume of that is, but if you, is it, wait, is, is it taking, uh, is no, it it's just a, a sensor? Or it's just uh, infrared or something like that, right? It's, it's so not if you were, yeah, so I, I I take that back. Um, but if you were if you were doing a lot of if you okay, so like things that we know can increase your red blood cell turnover include exercise, um, include any kind of blood loss, right? So like if you have um, a heavier period or you have you're running like a lot of lab tests or you donate blood, all of these things can increase your red blood cell turnover. And so that, and then there's also just other determinants of red blood cell turnover that are unknown. So, um, just you know, ge probably for genetic reasons or hormonal reasons or whatever it is, some people just have higher red blood cell turnover than other people, and it's a confounder. Then the second thing is that you actually have an enzyme called fructosamine three kinase that deglycates hemoglobin, and there are some things that might impact that, but there's also a strong genetic component. And I don't know if you can like get that measured with a test, but in research, they, they can test it. And there's a very significant correlation between inverse correlation between fructosamine 3 kinase activity and HbA1c. 
where HbA1c goes down if, if that enzyme is high, and if that enzyme is low, HbA1c goes up. Mm-hmm. So you're you're taking you're taking this HbA1c w- measurement, which in you is a little bit high, and there are three possible interpretations. One is that your cumulative past re- your cumulative blood glucose exposure over the last four to eight weeks is is high um, in the pre-diabetic range. Another is that your red blood cell turnover is a little bit lower than average. Um, and a third is that your fructosamine-3 kinase activity is a little bit lower than average. And you've ruled out the first one because your continuous monitor shows that that's not true. And therefore, you know it's one, of, one or two of these other confounding factors that makes HbA1c borderline useless in some cases, such as yours. And, and is this worth to explore while it's happening? Or I would just not... I'm, I would just I'm sorry, what did you say? Is it going is so to explode? Is, is that what you said? No. Is this <laughs> worth to explore the other two options that oh, we know? Them. Um, or is there, would a, not even... is, there a way to, is there a way to rule in or out those other two options? Is that what you're asking? Yes. Okay. Um, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, there's, there's no direct test for red blood cell turnover as far as I know. Uh, I mean, I don't know if some obscure lab offers one, but there's, it's not a usual test that you would get. Um, I'm trying to think if you could infer it from... I, 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 don't, I don't really think you could get a good inference uh, even from anything on a complete blood count, actually. Um, so I, I think you... I think it would make sense to consider that, you know, if you have, like, let's say you have, let's say you um, become menopausal or have amenorrhea or have a lighter period than average, then, you know, that would be one thing that would raise HbA1c that, and then if you, um, I don't know, haven't been exercising, like, let's say you go from like a, more active period to a less active period, and then it goes up a little bit, you know, that would probably be a contributor to that. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I don't think anyone offers a commercial test for fructosamine-3 kinase activity. Um, I don't, maybe it's it's in one, in, uh, maybe there are some SNPs that are in 23andMe or something like that, but I, I haven't, I don't know that that's the case. I, I, I doubt it is. Um, no one's diagnosing it for any reason. Um, but if I have time at some point and I, I find that there are any ways to look at either of these things, I'll post about it, but I don't think so. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for your question. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank you even for that question. Going back to the Q&A box, we have Iris. Ulrich asking a question for Iris from Denmark. And Iris's question is, I would like to ask you about copper and histamine and toxicity. I've heard that histamine binds to copper and vitamin C in the gut. Um... So I'm now interjecting. I have no idea if that's true. 
uh, it might be, but I've, I haven't come across it. But copper, I mean, particularly copper is needed for diamine oxidase, which gets rid of histamine in the gut. And I'm not, I'm not sure if, if that's what you're thinking of. Uh, going back to your question, if this is true, does that mean that copper and vitamin C works as an antihistamine in the gut and can be used as such? Um, I, I wouldn't do that, but improving your copper status will certainly, um, will certainly improve your ability to handle histamine in the gut if you're copper deficient. So, um, let's see, just quickly to, to make sure I have uh, a complete view of this. So, uh, diamine oxidase has shown to be copper dependent in humans. It's manganese dependent in humans. It is zinc dependent in humans. And it's been shown to be B6 dependent in pigs. And so that might apply to humans as well. I don't know if it's been shown not to be B6 dependent in humans. So it may be dependent on vitamin B6. And it's been shown to be riboflavin dependent in a plant, but I would not generalize that from humans. I don't think that would be very reliable. Um, so, so copper, zinc, manganese, and probably vitamin B6 would be important for diamine oxidase activity in the gut. Um, I mean, vitamin C is important to stabilize mast cells and prevent them from releasing histamine. But I don't know if it binds to histamine. Um, but in any case, I, I wouldn't use them as a direct antihistamine. Um, I, vitamin C would would be safer to do that with, although vitamin C at high doses is is not completely without risk. But copper at high doses would be at serious risk of toxicity. So, which I think is where your question is going. All right, so back to your question. Oh, so part of your question was if copper and vitamin C work as an antihistamine, could this increase the need for copper? And vitamin C because they may be used against histamines instead of getting absorbed. No, I would not count on that at all. Uh, I think that would be extremely unsafe to high dose copper, assuming it's not going to get absorbed. That's that's not safe at all. Um, back to your question: Is it correctly understood that mast cell activation syndrome leads to more histamine being produced in the gut? And if histamine binds to copper and vitamin C in the gut, could mast cell activation lead to deficiencies in copper and vitamin C? So I don't. I don't know 
about this binding to histamine in the gut. If if you have a source for that information and you post a link to it, I'll take a look at it uh, during this AMA. Um, but I I'm not familiar with that, so I'm going to be assume that the vitamin C is helping stabilize mast cells and prevent them from from releasing histamine, and that the copper is supporting diamine oxidase activity. N- under neither case is the copper and vitamin C going to be bound to anything that prevents them from being absorbed. Um, mast cell activation syndrome is probably going to raise the need for copper and vitamin C at a minimum to prevent the the syndrome from being as bad as it could be in its worst case. But whether it's going to take copper and vitamin C away from other functions such that you would get scurvy or any kind of classical copper deficiency syndrome like neutropenia or something like that, I don't know if, if that would happen. It might, but I, I don't know that that would happen. Going on to the, the last part of your question, and when supplementing with high doses of copper, is it then possible to prevent copper toxicity by testing in that case with which markers? Yeah, you want to measure serum copper and serum seroloplasmin, and you want and you the the top priority goes to co- serum copper, and you want to be in the middle of the range, not in the not in the top, not in the bottom. Uh, thank you, Ulrich and Iris, for your question. Hope that helps. Cindy M says, "Hi, Chris. Thanks for hosting these. I always learn a lot. You're welcome, Cindy." Thank you for your appreciation. Cindy goes on, to your knowledge, is there any upper limit on B-complex by IV versus oral intake? We'll be getting ALA infusion soon to treat nerve pain after some PubMed studies. And the protocol recommends daily B-complex supplementation. The BIV would contain the following amounts. Thiamine hydrochloride, 100 milligrams per milliliter. Riboflavin, 2 milligrams per milliliter. Dexpanthenol, USP, 2 milligrams per milliliter. Niacinamide, 100 milligrams per milliliter. Can you think of any downside to getting this amount five days a week for three weeks by IV? Well, the first thing that I'll say is I, I can't make any heads or tails out of those doses because you didn't tell me how many milliliters you're going to take in each infusion. But, um, but what I can say is that thiamine might cause problems in rare circumstances where people have some sort of sulfur intolerance, but there's no thiamine toxicity to be concerned with as a general rule. Um, riboflavin, I mean, the the ratio of riboflavin here is very small. Like If you just look at the DRIs for, for these... You are, you have an obvious low amount of riboflavin relative to the amount of thiamine, no matter how many milliliters you're getting infused, just on a ratio basis. So it's hard to imagine that you could possibly wind up with too much riboflavin, but there's also no toxicity from riboflavin. Um, granted, any B vitamin in megadose might cause imbalances with other B vitamins, but there's no general toxicity syndrome that would, by rule of thumb, tend to cause problems with thiamine or riboflavin. Dexpanthenol is a form of um, B5, 
And that's also a very low amount. But extremely high amounts of pantothenic acid have been used uh, orally or by IV. They seem to be very efficiently used and also have no toxicity. The niacinamide is, is something that could have toxicity. So niacinamide, first of all, is... Um, it shouldn't cause flushing, although it, it might in some exceedingly sensitive... Um, oh, Cindy clarifies that one milliliter is used in each infusion. So that's one milliliter of the infusion five days a week for three weeks. You know, so you're basically getting these exact doses three five days a week for three weeks. So that's 100 milligrams a day of thiamine um, five days a week for three weeks, two milligrams of riboflavin, two milligrams of dexpanthenol, 100 milligrams of niacinamide, each of those five days a week for three weeks. Um, I mean... The niacinamide is the only thing that has some potential toxicity concerns. The concerns would be sapping methylation and inhibiting uh, NAD-dependent enzymes, meaning uh, inhibiting enzymes that do things that depend on the hydrolysis of NAD. So, like PARPs and sirtuins. Um, but 100 milligrams five days a week for three weeks is a pretty low dose. So, I, I wouldn't be too worried about it. But that would be the, that'd be the, and it, it's probably not going to cause flushing either. Although I've seen like anecdotes of, of very sensitive people getting flushing from niacinamide. It's pretty rare, I think. Um, so that that would be the only concern, and it's and it's not a big one at those doses. Thank you, Cindy, for your question. Heather Chandler has the next question. Heather says, "I begin my day with oral rehydration salts: thirteen hundred milligrams of sodium chloride, seven hundred fifty milligrams of potassium chloride, fourteen hundred fifty milligrams of trisodium citrate dihydrate, and glucose." I do this one hour prior to eating breakfast. Could I take 15 milligrams of zinc along with this, or would you expect the rehydration salts to outcompete the zinc? Um, I think that it would be fine to take uh, to take zinc with that. Yeah, I don't. I don't see anything that would be obviously a problem. So. That was quick. Hopefully, it was helpful. Thank you, uh, Heather, for your question. RJ Douglas says, Hi, Chris. Thank you very much for doing these AMAs. You're welcome, RJ. They're very educational. I have heard that reishi, as discussed in this study, and turmeric, as discussed in this study, can both decrease testosterone production. I I enjoy having these items on occasion. So my question is, assuming a standard dose, for how long would these impact testosterone production? For example, would the impact on testosterone be cleared from my system in 24 hours? I ask this question in part because I usually weight train in the morning. So I want my testosterone to peak around that time. 
And I'm considering adding turmeric, reishi, etc. in the afternoon or evening in order to get the restorative and anti-inflammatory benefits from these substances without them impacting my workouts. Thank you very much for taking my question. So let me uh, share my screen here. Uh, so we're looking up at a, a study in the International Journal of Endocrinological Metabolism from 2012 called An Update on Plant-Derived Anti-Androgens from Paul Grant and Shaman Ram, Ram, Ramasamy. And this says, anti-androgens are an assorted group of drugs and compounds that reduce the levels or activity of androgen hormones within the human body. Disease states in which this is relevant include polycystic ovarian syndrome, hirsutism, hirsutism, acne, benign prostatic hyperplasia, and endocrine-related cancers such as carcinoma of the prostate. We provide an overview and discussion of the use of anti-androgen medications in clinical practice and explore the increasing recognition of the benefits of plant-derived anti-androgens. For example, spearmint tea in the management of PICOS, for which some evidence about efficacy is beginning to emerge. Other agents covered include red reishi, which has been shown to reduce levels of 5-alpha reductase, the enzyme that facilitates conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone, licorice, which has phytoestrogen effects and reduces testosterone levels, Chinese peony, which promotes the aromatization of testosterone into estrogen, green tea, which contains epigallocatechins and also inhibits 5-alpha reductase, thereby reducing the conversion of normal testosterone into more potent DHT, black cohosh, which has been shown to kill both andro androgen-responsive and non-responsive human prostate cancer cells, chaste tree, which has a re which has a reduces sick <laughs> prolactin from the anterior pituitary and saw palmetto extract, which is used as an anti-androgen through it, although it showed no difference in comparison to placebo in clinical trials. Well, I'll say off the bat that, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with this data, but we are going to have to know most probably what the active component is and then have a pharmacokinetic study on how long it lasts in the body to be even begin answering your question. And I would be surprised if they have, uh, <coughs> I'd be surprised if they, if they have detailed data on that, unless there's actually a sort of half, what you would ideally want is a half life of the effect um, in humans, you know, so a study where they dose a certain dose on a regular schedule in humans and then look at how long does the decrease in testosterone take to recover. And then that's, that's going to be very complicated by the fact that, you know, they even indicated in the abstract, some of these are having, um, you know, inhibiting, um, testosterone metabolizing enzymes like 5-alpha reductase, which, which isn't even going to... You'd have to be measuring DHT um, and other testosterone metabolites together to be looking at the activity of that. And I would be very surprised if they have detailed data on that in humans. Um, maybe just keyword search through here. So you, you were concerned about reishi and turmeric, right? So reishi, they say, red reishi, commonly known as lingzhi in Chinese, is a mushroom 
thought to have many health benefits in research exploring the antiandrogenic effects of 20 mushrooms species, reishi mushrooms are the strongest action inhibiting testosterone. That study found that reishi mushrooms significantly reduced the 5-alpha reductase preventing conversion of testosterone to the more potent DHT. High levels of DHT are a risk factor for conditions such as benign prostatic hypertrophy, acne, and baldness. I mean, I'll tell you right away that it sounds like this is a like a cell study where you're not going to have any uh, where you're not going to have any information on half life in the human. Oh, so they're looking at inhibiting testosterone-induced growth of the ventral prostate in castrated rats. This is a terrible abstract in that it's not clear whether they did a cell study to screen these compounds and then took one and tested it against prostate uh, growth in castrated rats or if prostate growth in, growth in castrated rats was the main test. Um, Shoot, I think I'm not sharing the study. Um, let's see. Let me stop share and then share again and go to... Is this Fujita 2005? Yeah, it is. All right, so share Fujita 2005. All right, so here they are making methanol extracts of edible mushrooms... And then, then, all right, it's basically a cell study. So they're taking rat liver and prostate microsomes, which are endoplasmic reticulum, which is a subcellular organelle. And then they're, and then they're looking at the effect of the enzymatic activity in those extracts. So this, this is giving you nothing. That could answer your question at all, because this is just a basic screening of the potential activity, and we don't even know if feeding this to a rat makes the rat absorb it and how long it takes to go away, let alone a human. Um, so in the rat study... They took the testes out of the rats after four days. Testosterone was injected into them once daily for seven days. Some animals got a 0.3% of the milled fruiting body of guanoderma lucidum with their food. And so that was... Is that, is that reishi? Guana, that must be reishi, right? So I don't, I mean, let's see if there's anything on time course here. Um, I don't think so. So they, They got it at the same time as the testosterone.
that they got them once daily for seven days. Then they killed them and they looked at the growth of the prostate. Um, so, okay, let me stop sharing and go back to... Go back to this one. So there's nothing about the time course there. And also they don't have um, the anti-androgen effect was just shown in the screening of the, I, that, like it's not even a cell study. They isolated a subcellular component and then screened it. And so you're, you know, you, you presumably you have um, an effect in the rats, given that you inhibited the, testosterone induction of prostate growth, but the anti-androgenic effect on the enzyme is is looking at it in a way, in a you're sort of just dumping the extract right on the subcellular organelle. And so you have to keep in mind that when you generally these cell studies aren't accurate because the, uh, phytochemicals are treated as xenobiotics and so besides the fact that you're absor you're absorbing, you know, probably 1% on average of phytochemicals and then you're methylating them and glucuronidating them et cetera, et cetera, generally cells are exposed to the to the to the um phase 2 conjugates meaning once you've detoxified it to make it easier to excrete there by methylating, glucuronidating, et cetera. That's what cells are exposed to. So Dumping these things on a subcellular organelle is um, is it's an interesting proof of principle as a screening thing, but it, I wouldn't conclude anything at all from it uh, except that it that might happen. Um, and there's you know you can't draw any time course from this in in vivo study there, and they don't list any other relevant studies in this paper. Um, and so that's you know that's that might be all there is on that, and then. Do they have? Do they cover curcumin or turmeric in this one? I know you gave the other one. It looks like not. Um, so the, on the other one you have is modulation of AKR1C2 by curcumin decreases testosterone production, prostate cancer from Cancer Science 2018 by Eid et al. Um, and they say here that. Intratumoral androgen biosynthesis has been recognized as an essential factor of castration-resistant prostate cancer. The present study investigated the effects of curcumin on the inhibition of intracrine androgen synthesis in prostate cancer. So you're the cancer, we're looking at the cancer making its own androgens. Human prostate cancer cell lines LNCAP and 22RV1 cells were incubating with or without curcumin after which cell proliferation was measured at 0, 24, 48, and 72 hours, respectively. Prostate tissues from the transgenic adenocarcinoma of the mouse prostate TRAMP model were obtained after one-month oral administration of 200 milligrams per kilogram per day curcumin. 200 mg per kg is a lot of curcumin. Um, but anyway... Um, pro so let's see, prostate tissues from that mouse model 
they okay, so they fed the the mice two hundred megs per keg per day of curcumin for a month, and then looked at prostate tissues from this mouse model of adenocarcinoma. Testosterone and dihydro and DHT concentrations in the prostate cancer cells were determined through mass spectrometry. Curcumin inhibited cell proliferation and induced apoptosis of prostate cancer cells in a dose dependent manner. Curcumin decreased the expression of steroidogenic acute regulatory proteins, CYP11A1 and HSD3B2 in prostate cancer cell lines, supporting the decrease of testosterone production in prostate cancer cells. Uh, after one month oral administration of curcumin, aldoketoreductase expression was elevated. Simultaneously, decreased testosterone levels in the prostate tissues were observed in the tramp mice. Meanwhile, curcumin treatments considerably increased the expression of aldoketoreductase in prostate cancer cell lines, supporting the decrease of dihydro of DHT. Taken together, these results suggest that curcumin's natural bioactive compounds could have potent anti-cancer properties due to suppression of androgen production, and this could have therapeutic effects on prostate cancer. I mean, I guess the first thing I would want to know, and I'm not too familiar with this topic, is do these prostate cancer cells have alterations to their testosterone production that make the effect of curcumin different in them? Um, I don't know if I can be able to find that easily unless it's mentioned in, in the intro. Uh, so let's take a quick look. In cultured cell analysis, curcumin has been shown to cause ap apoptosis and cell cycle arrest with prostate cancer cells. They did a, a, a double-blind trial on prostate-specific antigen in male patients with negative prostate cancer biopsies. PSA levels decreased in the patients among the group which PSA was over 10 and were treated with a supplement containing isoflavones and curcumin. Furthermore, treatment strongly inhibited PSA production, production and suppressed expression of androgen receptor. And this, so this study, just the way they're talking about this study kind of sounds like a BS to me. So I want to take a look at that. Um, I mean, it's it sounds like they are... So the, the relevant thing, right, in this study is did the... Um, all right, I gotta I gotta change my sharing to Eid twenty twenty in got Vegeta. One second. Oh, I didn't open it, that's why. So the the relevant thing in this study is going to be were the um were, I mean first of all they're combining soy with with uh with curcumin and so we don't know which is doing which but the relevant thing is is not is not whether the PSA went down that's a complete BS way to look at this because if something is high it will go down as a result of regression of the mean on average, no matter what. 
it's was PSA lower in the supplement group versus the placebo group. So, I mean, so for okay, this this study is complete BS. So look at this. Um, the PSA at baseline is is first of all, it's higher in the supplement group than in the placebo group, which is there's not a lot you can do about that if you're randomizing it. If it's a small study, you know, whatever. But the but the point is that it's it's 2.5 points higher in the supplement group than the placebo group and the amount that it's going down it, look it's psa's lower in the placebo group end of story you know but of course that doesn't tell you anything really because i mean it's very consistent with this thing doing nothing to psa um so the the principle of regression to the mean is is um and I I went I have a post on this where I went into great detail just search my website for regression to the mean. Um I got an article called like when something when a study shows something is true but it's completely false or regression to the mean or something like that. But the principle you know, the, the I won't go through the mechanics of why this is true but the principle is that if something is high it will go down on its own, um, and the, the reason is that if you get, if you get a collection of people with high PSA, you know some of those people always have high PSA, but some of those people usually have lower PSA, but they just had a bad PSA day, and so because their PSA was higher, they got into that group, which means that on average, um, you're going to have more of those people that usually have normal PSA, but it was high on that day. That you measure the next time, and it's just the overwhelming probability is that the PSA is going to be lower for them, and they're going to drive drive down the group average. And so that's why the overwhelming rule that you would get from any statistics class is that what you want to look at is is the ending value in the supplement versus the placebo group. Um, but if if you if you have a BS, uh, if you have a well conducted study that shows nothing, and you want to and you want to BS your results, you'll look at something like the decline in over the course of the study in the supplement group. Why would you even have a placebo at all if that was the metric you're using? It's total BS. Um, and so the study shows that that this thing does nothing to PSA because the PSA is literally lower in the placebo group than the supplement group, and that's not statistically significant. <coughs> but it's but it's but the point is, if you wanted to show that this supplement did anything, you would need to show that this was statistically significantly lower in the supplement group than the placebo group. So the conclusion from this paper is that there is no inhibitory effect of soy isoflavones or curcumin on the production of PSA, and therefore all the me mechanistic BS to explain why that effect exists is useless because it doesn't exist. Um. So, all right, going back to the going back to that paper. All right, so they have shown that that curcumin. All right, so this is the same authors who showed this study.
who are misrepresenting it in this paper. Therefore, I question this whole paper because these these people are trying to propagate this extremely weak effect in this paper and and build on it by showing more and more reasons why an effect that didn't happen happened. You know, so that that really calls into question the whole thrust of this of this paper. But anyway, um So what I what I really want to know is is does this does this have any information on why a prostate cancer cell might be different in its testosterone production than like a human uh, tes- testicle, uh, for example? I mean, so real, actually, real quickly. I mean, did, I wonder, did this, um, did this, uh, did this paper? They did a human study, right? So, did the, did the human study show any effect on testosterone in the humans? No, they did not. They didn't look at that. I mean, so they. I don't know why they wouldn't look on look at that in the human study if that was their hypothesis. Although you know they might have looked at it and there was no effect, and so they didn't show it. Um, I guess let's check real quick in in the discussion. Many studies have shown that intratumoral steroidogenesis of testosterone and prostate cancer cells is active, including these, the case of castration-resistant prostate cancer. To date, to date, a series of steroidogenic enzymes necessary for androgen biosynthesis from cholesterol were observed in prostate cancer. Moreover, circulating cholesterol levels were directly correlated with tumor expression of CYP17A1, which is the critical enzyme for de novo synthesis of androgens. So it, it looks like they are not. Um, it looks like they're they're making normal enzymes, uh, but that doesn't mean that the expression is regulated the same way as in normal testes cells. I guess um, one thing I'll look at real quick is whether curcumin in uh, in examines human effects matrix has anything on testosterone. And I'm not, I'm not seeing it so far. I, you know, I'm starting to, I feel like I should redo all of Examine's work because I don't know why they take this, this PSA study seriously. But anyway, um, Holy smokes, there are a lot of things listed in the human effects matrix. All right, testosterone. Oh, great. Great, a human study showing no effect. 
a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial to evaluate the role of curcumin in prostate cancer patients with intermittent androgen deprivation. Prostate, 2019 by Choi et al. Total of 97 participants were randomized one-to-one to curcumin and placebo. Among them, 82 patients were, ev- were evaluable for the analysis. There was... I don't care about the off-treatment. Do they? The change of PSA testosterone levels during six months were not different between curcumin and placebo groups. Um, so no effect on testosterone in humans. Uh, let's see. And then let's see if they have reishi. Human effect matrix for reishi. Do we have testosterone? Going once. Testosterone. C study. Randomized clinical trial of an ethanol extract of guanoderma lucidum in men with lower urinary tract sy- sy- syndromes. And no changes were observed with respect to testosterone levels, among many other things. Um, all right. Well, that's it. There's no effect on testosterone of either of these things in humans. These these cell these screening studies are interesting, but there's no human effects. Um, and these people are over interpreting their results and promoting a, a bigger effect than there is. So, I wouldn't worry about it at all. Um, but to give you an alternative answer, generally, most of these phytochemicals. I mean, if you don't know the specific one, and, and you you can't really say much about the dose over time and how long it takes to go away. But as a general rule of thumb, your body's trying to get rid of this stuff. And usually it doesn't stay much in the system for more than 24 hours. You know, So I'm most familiar with green tea. And I know green tea catechins, um, you know, they're gone in like 24 hours. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit stays around. But if, if a certain dose is going to be required to do something with testosterone, in which case, it's going to have to be way bigger than any of the doses in these studies finding no effect. Um, then it's it, it's it's not going to st- even even if there's some left after 24 hours, it's, there's not going to be much left. Not not enough to do anything that 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 first initial dose was required to do. So thank you, RJ, for your question. Hope that helped. Hope that helped everyone who's interested in reading research. I know it was a little long-winded, but we got to look at how to how to look at science studies. Uh, Pegu Laughlin says, "Does baking glycine in recipes negate part or all of its benefits?" Um, I doubt it. I mean, uh, you know, generally, proteins are are um, the protein itself isn't heat stable, but the amino acids are pretty heat stable. So. I've never seen a study on baking with glycine, but I would surprise if that I would be surprised if that negated its benefits. Thank you, Peggy, for your question. Peggy says, I'm eating prone while watching screens. You are fired, smiley face. <laughs> well, you're still here, aren't you? <laughs> Tom Becker says, bad reactions to magnesium. 
erratic heartbeat, bad dreams, loud tinnitus. What do you think this is due to? Low aldosterone? I read magnesium inhibits aldosterone release. Is that part of the problem? How to improve increased aldosterone levels naturally? Thank you. Um, I, I, I think that's, I think that's kind of far out as a, as an explanation. Um, you know, because you could you could just be having hypermagnesemia, and so of course, if you have hypermagnesemia, you're going to have an erratic, you're going to have heartbeat issues. I mean, generally, too much magnesium is going to slow the heart rate, but it could do the opposite, and it it could also cause secondary hypermagnesemia. Can also cause secondary hyper hypocalcemia. Um, I mean, that, that would I, overwhelmingly the top. Like may, maybe these other things you you mentioned are true, but overwhelmingly the the top issue is uh, is it altering your serum magnesium and or calcium levels? So you really should look at serum magnesium, not red blood cell magnesium. Serum magnesium um, in the fasting state, and then also after you take a magnesium supplement. You know, because because it, it might be that your fasting serum magnesium is in the normal range, but that maybe it's on the higher end, and as a result, or or maybe it's not, and as a result of something else, when you take a magnesium supplement, you're spiking into the hypermagnesemic range. I mean, it's, if it's over the top of the range at all, I would consider that possible, and if it's double the top of the range, I would consider that. Um, just directly the problem. And so you know you're you're um, bringing up perhaps there are other uh, secondary effects on other electrolytes or something like that. I guess you're saying through aldosterone, um, which is going to be you know especially relevant to uh, salt and potassium. And you know maybe, um, but really, any any electrolyte abnormality is going to be very overlapping with any other electrolyte abnormality because these are all collectively driving uh, neuronal excitation and neurotransmitter release and action potentials in neurons and and contraction of muscles. You know so. All of these things could be, you know, anything that, that could be from a salt or potassium imbalance is, is probably also going to be possibly related to a, a, a calcium and magnesium balance. And so it's, it's just overwhelmingly, um, Tom says calcium is 9.1 around that time too. Um, I think you want to look at. I don't think you said your magnesium at that time, um, but you know your your calcium. Uh, you you want to look at uh, ionized as well to rule out a calcium issue. But I would be much more interested in your serum magnesium at that point, particularly post supplement rather than fasting. Um,
Tom says serum mag. Okay, I don't. I don't. I'm not sure what you mean. I don't remember the mag serum mag. Okay, do you, okay. Do you mean it? It was okay, but you don't remember the exact number, or do you mean okay? I'll I'll go look at it because I don't remember. Oh, I mean I'll order it. Yeah. So I would I would get serum magnesium fasting and then take your usual dose of magnesium and test your serum magnesium like uh, an hour later or something like that. And see, or well, actually, I would I would uh, take the distance based on the distance of symptoms, you know. So if you get these problems four hours after taking magnesium, then you might want to. And if that maybe that's usually at night, but then I would take it in the daytime or whenever you can test reasonably and like do a four hour post magnesium if that's the usual time frame for the symptoms. I guess your heart rate might be might be more sensitive in the sense that you don't have to wait for like a... Obviously, you can't uh, test your serum magnesium while you're asleep and dreaming, but but you could you know use, use whatever the nearest symptom is. So it takes X number of hours to develop an erratic heartbeat, and that's the first thing. And then when you notice your erratic heartbeat, if you fall asleep, you notice the dreams, etc. Then like take the minimal distance for the erratic heartbeat or the not really the minimal, but the modal. So, like, what what is the most common distance of symptoms from taking magnesium? You know, this is most commonly around two hour mark, for example. Then use the two hour mark as your you know take the magnesium at a point where you could go in two hours later and get get it tested, and otherwise keep the conditions of taking it as similar as you can. Obviously, you can't control for time of day, but if you usually take it on an empty stomach versus you usually take it with a meal. You know, do that uh, so that it's similar, and look at the and look at the the, the um, at the serum magnesium post supplement. Although I would say try to control for time of day as much as you can. You know, so like if LabCorp closes at five and you get a four thirty appointment, then that would be better, just in case there's any kind of diurnal effect of anything that's interacting with it. Um. That's what I would do, and you know, there's no re- no reason to say like don't look at aldosterone, but I, I just I just wonder, you know, maybe you're taking too much magnesium, or it's not getting into cells, and your serum magnesium has an outsized response to it. All right, thank you, Todd, for your question. RB says, for someone with gut problems, how would they know if they have low stomach acid? Is there a non-invasive accurate way to test that? I thought I might have low stomach acid and took beating HCL, but afterwards I felt a strong burning sensation in my stomach. What are other things I could try and how would I know they're working? For example, apple cider vinegar. Um, There are no accurate non-invasive ways to know. Um, So the The um, the conventional way to do it is uh, I forgot what it's called. Um, it's a swallowable monitor. Um, trying to see if I can find the name of it. 
Let's see. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I, I I forget the name of it, but anyway, it's a, it's a monitor that you swallow that gives a pH reading. Um, and all you know, there are various tests that are probably useful, but not necessarily anywhere near as accurate or precise, such as the baking soda test. Um, and you could just Google these, like HCL baking soda test. And you take a little bit of baking soda. If you burp really quickly, you have high stomach acid. If it takes you forever to burp, you have low stomach acid. Then there's the HCL test. You did that. I don't know how many you took. If you took one capsule, then you probably don't have a deficient stomach acid. You know, but if you took six, then maybe you do, and you just need a lower dose. Uh, you know, but you can't rule out that you just have a sphincter problem. And so you take a little bit of HCL and it's coming back up rather than, than doing anything. RB clarifies just one capsule. Yeah. I mean, so you, you can't rule it out. Uh, you could say it's less probable. Try the baking soda test. If you burp fairly quickly with the baking soda, then you, you could probably rule it out. I mean, you're, it's, it's not a, it's not a precise test at all. And it's, um, and I don't know that you can rule in low stomach acid with a long time to burp, but you can at least, you know, if you take it and then you burp, you can at least rule out that you don't have much stomach acid. Uh, and then, you know, if you really want to know, you got to swallow that capsule. So thank you, RB, for your question. Gary Krieger says, Hi, Dr. Master John. Hi, Gary. I know you're not a fan of SpectraCell, but if you could humor me, I've had three SpectraCell tests 2014, 2015, 2019. 2015 results followed changes in my diet and supplements versus 14 results, giving me confidence in the test. My lipoic acid and CoQ10 were at healthy levels in both tests. With that said, from 16 to 19, I adopted a peat-like diet, meaning Ray Peat, Peatarian, mostly increasing milk, sugar, gelatin, and cooked veggies, and decreasing grains and raw veggies. A 19 test showed a dramatic drop in lipoic acid and CoQ10. No other significant changes were seen. Since 19, my diet has returned to including all foods. Could higher sugar intake cause a drop in lipoic acid and CoQ10? Also, what key nutrients are needed to boost lipoic acid? I now regularly consume raw spinach, broccoli, and supplement with ancestral supplements, beef organs. Thank you. Um, I mean, if lipoic acid and CoQ10 went down when you increased the milk, sugar, gelatin, and cooked veggies... I think it's not from anything you increased. I think it's from what you decreased. You obviously decreased something besides raw veggies and grains. Or or maybe you didn't. I mean uh, maybe maybe the grains were were really high then. Um I don't know. I mean I 
I would I just I just find it very unlikely that uh that either of those things are going to go down because of something you had in your diet instead of something you didn't have in your diet that had LA CoQ10 in it. So I don't know. I I would I mean off the top of my head um I just know that potatoes have some lipoic acid and organ meats are generally high in lipoic acid and um CoQ10 is overwhelmingly high in in heart meat, but also soybean oil is quite high in CoQ10 compared to all other oils, and that's definitely a no-no on a pitarian diet. Um, but other than that, I would look up in a database the food you're eating for lipoic acid CoQ10 to try to figure out what went missing in your diet. I I really doubt high sugar intake caused a drop in those. I doubt it. Um, but I, as you said, I don't. I don't read much into the spectra cell, um, and I know you saw changes that reflected your supplements, but. But I think you're, you must be extrapolating. I mean, obviously, you don't mean that you were supplementing with LA and CoQ10 when it was high, in which case that's why it was high. It sounds like you're saying you made changes to other supplements. And so, therefore, you have confidence in SpectraCell in general, and now you have confidence in LA and CoQ10. I think that's completely wrong. Um, I mean, if you, if you weren't changing your LA and CoQ10 in a way that explains the SpectraCell results, I mean, you have no basis. Uh, to assume that it has that it accurately reflects your LA and CoQ10 status. Um, unless you're just saying it was so consistent across those years until you changed your diet. But, um, but I don't know. I I think that's kind of weak. So I don't know. I don't have a good answer to your question. Um, your LA will probably go up if you eat more potatoes and organ meats, and your CoQ10 will probably go up if you eat more beef heart, uh, or if you take those supplements. But I'm I, off the top of my head, I can't tell you every step of LA synthesis or anything like that. Um, and I I would look at blood concentrations of those and not the spectra cell. So I think SpectraCell is good for brainstorming, but not for confirming. Um, yeah, but anyway, that's all I can all I can give you off the top of my head. Thanks, Gary, for your question. Joan Hutchinson says, normally if I need a sweetener in a recipe, I use medjool dates. Looking for a substitute for the odd time, need a product that acts similar to granulated sugar. Came across lucuma powder made from lucuma fruit. Wondering what your thoughts on lucuma powder. I have no thoughts on lucuma powder. I don't know anything about it. But if you want a sweetener that acts similarly to granulated sugar and you're not against eating sugar, which you're obviously not against if you eat dates, then I would get rapadura, which is granulated sugar that hasn't been refined. I think that would be overwhelmingly 
most likely to act like granulated sugar because it is granulated sugar. It's just not refined. Because it sounds like what you want is just non-refined sweeteners that do have sugar because that's what dates would be. So I would use uh, Rapidura and I, I don't know anything about Lacuma powder. So sorry, I'm not directly answering your question, but I don't know if I helped, but uh, I hope I helped. Thank you, John, for your question. Pamela Peak says, any thoughts on treatment for chronic tinnitus in people older than 55 or 60 that has no obvious acute causes, just getting worse of the years? Um, well, you want to look at the causes 30 years ago. Uh, so unfortunately, tinnitus never has an acute cause. Tinnitus is a 30-year delayed response to the loud music you listen to when you're a kid or to working... Um, you know, in, in occupational exposure to high noise with no, without adequate ear protection. Uh, so you rarely do you want to look for an acute cause that's happening at the moment rather than 30 years ago. Um, but magnesium has been shown to help with tinnitus, although Tom gets tinnitus from taking magnesium. So there's an exception to every rule, but magnesium is the first thing that I would look at. Thank you, Pamela, for your question. Anonymous says, if I think I have fat malabsorption, for example, low triglycerides, scatteria, floating stools, but digestive enzymes don't seem to solve it, what are what other interpretations you would recommend to potentially address it? How does someone know if they have a problem with bile or insufficient enzymes or some other root cause? Um, I mean, you definitely have fat malabsorption if you have low triglycerides, scatteria, and floating stools. You might want to look at whether there's a new phenomenon or it has been always with you. Because, I mean, if, if you have always had low triglycerides, statteria, and floating stools, then you might have a genetic uh, hypo-beta-lipoproteinemia or A-beta-lipoproteinemia, which would cause genetic fat malabsorption. Um, if that's not the case, then I would look at thyroid levels first. Um, I would try bitters. Bitters promote the fat digestive machinery. So Urban Moonshine makes a good bitters tincture that you can get on Amazon. Take a recommended dose. You could experiment with a meal or a half hour before the meal to see which helps better. Uh, I mean, kind of hard to tell between enzymes versus bile, but you know, if enzymes don't help, it's more likely bile, although the dose might be relevant. And if bile helps and the enzymes don't, then it's probably bile. Or if taurine and glycine help, it's probably bile. Uh, but bitters will promote the whole fat digestive machinery. And if, if nothing helps, then you should definitely look at whether you might have a genetic um, hypo or A-beta-lipoproteinemia. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Eva Klein says, is vitamin C a histamine liberator? No, vitamin C prevents histamine release. Although, you know, as a, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule, but like the rule is vitamin C as an antioxidant prevents mast cell degranulation and therefore prevents histamine liber liberation. Pegu Laughlin says, the Cunningham panel by molec Moleculera tests uh, 
CIM Kinase 11. Not sure if this is anything remotely related to the kinase discussed earlier. If not, excuse helpful info. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but thank you, Peggy. RB says, thank you for hosting these very helpful AMAs, Chris. You're welcome. Do I need to eat foods with calcium every day, or is it okay to have large amounts of calcium-containing foods, for example, dairy once or twice a week, but not have it on other days of the week? You definitely want your calcium smoothed out over 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 the day. Uh, definitely. Um, if I can't get enough calcium from foods due to food intolerances and need to take calcium supplements, do you recommend taking calcium supplements at the same time as magnesium supplements? doesn't matter. What about other supplements? I recall reading, for instance, that zinc supplements should be taken at a separate time from calcium supplements because they compete for absorption sites. Um, generally, calcium at high levels will inhibit the absorption of everything. And that's not, that's not really any kind of specific thing. It's just calcium across the board inhibits the absorption of all the other positively charged minerals. Uh, but that's high doses. And if you just keep your calcium levels, uh, your calcium intake, or doses similar to what you get from a glass of milk. So like 300 milligrams, no more than that at one time. I wouldn't worry about it at all. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you can start to micromanage that stuff if you have like, you know, your plasma zinc is low and you have symptoms and you can't figure out why, then you could try moving your zinc away from your milk or calcium supplement. But generally speaking, you can ignore that if you're not megadosing. Thank you, RB, for your question. Garrett Krieger says, would grains help with LA, meaning lipoic acid? I, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, I, I would look up a food database for LA and see if there's specific grains that you might have been eating when your LA levels were high and see if those match. Uh, you know, if those, if those are, are found in um, a food source database for LA. Off the top of my head, I would say the Lonis Pauling Institute page for lipoic acid might have a link to a such a database. Pamela Peak says, how do you feel about vibrant nutritional testing? Same as SpectraCell or Vibrant is a good lab. I don't know anything about them. Um, I mean, I could look them up now. I feel like I have seen them. Uh, and I don't I don't think they have. I don't think their panel is like Spectracells. So tests we offer. I mean, so I think this this selling point of testing intracellular and extracellular is sort of is sort of dubious. Uh, All right, so three tubes will be drawn, one trace element serum tube and two whole blood uh, potassium EDTA tubes. The trace element tube will be spun down, followed by pipetting, blended, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, they're just, they're just looking at the nutrient levels in the different fractions. Spectrum does, Spectracell is not doing that. They are 
taking white blood cells and seeing if the white blood cells grow faster when they add the nutrient. Um, and Vibrant's not doing that. And so I, my problem with SpectraCell isn't that it's a big panel. There's all kinds of good big panels that I like. You know, if you look in the cheat sheet, uh, which you all have access to um, for free. So that's in the new Chris Masterjohn PhD.substack.com, which is where MasterPass now is. There's a section of the menu that says ebooks, and you can just go there to get the cheat sheet if you don't already have it. You know, so you'll see panels in there like the Ion Plus 40 from Genova. Um, I don't have a problem with panels. And the Vibrant panel, it's not, um, there's nothing wrong with it, but they seem to think that just like measuring um, all the different fractions of blood that they can for these nutrients gives you necessarily better information. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, if you go to chrismasterjohnphd.com slash marker, I have a podcast, What Makes a Good Marker of Nutritional Status, which explains my views there. But it's, you know, a good marker is one that's been validated against depletion repletion studies, ideally with clinical symptoms, um, so that it's shown that it's a clinically relevant marker of nutritional status. Just because you measured it more places doesn't make it better. So I think Vibrant is overhyping their intracellular add on. But I don't, I don't have a problem with their, what they're doing. Whereas SpectraCell is measuring, uh, SpectraCell is measuring whether a lymphocyte from your blood grows better in a medium that has everything except the nutrient added versus that nutrient being added. And that's, that's like, you know, maybe it's reflecting that you're poor in that status, but maybe it's just reflected that your lymphocytes have been activated and are hungry for more nutrients. So it's it's just like sometimes it'll probably line up with a well-validated test. Sometimes it won't, but they haven't validated their test against anything that is a that is a good validation metric. Uh, they just sort of assume that they, because they're cutting edge and they're doing something different, it's better. But that's not that's not how markers work. They're better when they're better validated and sh- and in the validation shown to be valid. Um, all right, thank you, Pamela, for your question. Anonymous says, Chris, in previous AMA, you noted that you regularly consume toast. Could you state what bread you use? And if you have any bread recommendations, also your thoughts on Ezekiel bread. Thanks. Um, I, When I eat toast, I eat bread alone, whole wheat sourdough bread. And the only reason I use that, which I think is very good, is because I can't get the, the toast that I really love, which is French Meadows... 24-hour European-style sourdough rye. Uh, that is my favorite bread of all time. I used to buy it in Whole Foods in Massachusetts when I lived in... Or was it Connecticut? Uh, I forget when I started. It might have been when I lived in Connecticut or it might have been when I lived in Massachusetts. But when I lived in Illinois, I was able to special order it from the local food co-op by the case and then store it in my chest freezer. When I moved to New York, I can't get it. I can't get them to mail order it. I can't find someone who will special order it. And so I used my second best option, which is spread alone whole wheat sourdough bread. Ezekiel is okay, but I find that this sprouted uh, beans of all sorts is not not super great on my microbiome. 
uh, I do much better with sourdough whole grain than I do with uh, sprouted beans of all sorts. So I, I, Ezekiel is much better than like regular bread, which I, which I wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole. You know, like I wouldn't eat standard American bread. Uh, I'll eat it when I'm like out with people who don't understand nutrition that much, but I wouldn't want it to be a, a major feature of my diet by any stretch. Uh, so Ezekiel bread is, is, it's decent by that metric, but I, I don't eat it much just because I, I don't feel like I digest it as well as sour dough whole grain breads. And, you know, long sourdough is, is what I would want. Uh, Heather Chandler says, just wanted to thank you for some of your advice over the years. I was unable to get my selenium down without your help. I guess it was a methylation problem since taking creatine riboflavin finally worked. You also advised me to try zinc to increase white blood cell counts, and that has worked also so well that I finally graduated from hematology. I really appreciate the opportunities to pick your brain. Thank you, Heather. I appreciate that. Peggy Laughlin says, how much milk thistle is okay to take on a regular basis? Any other thought on protecting liver if I need to take ongoing things, medications, including CBD that go through the liver? Uh, I don't know anything about CBD, so I don't want to answer that question specifically. And I'd have to do some research on CBD to understand how it's toxified and stuff like that. Um, I also don't know any safety problems with milk thistle. But do be careful that anything that is promoting liver detox as a phytochemical is doing so because it upregulates liver detoxification enzymes, which it does because it has to be processed by those enzymes because it's otherwise toxic. So there are going to be some people that, that, you know, regular dose gives them some problem with, with toxicity. And that's going to be rare. It's going to be few and far between. But there will be some dose where too much is bad for anyone. And so without knowing the data off the top of my head, I would stick to the dose on the label and would not... No, I wouldn't use it more than than the dose on the label. Now, unfortunately, I can't, I can't give you any tips on CBD detoxification because I haven't looked into it. But maybe when I get a chance, I'll, I'll try to look into it and write something about it. Anonymous says, Chris, a follow-up question regarding your diet. In a previous AMA, you noted that you regularly consume raw milk. Can you please describe the benefits of raw milk and whether consuming pasteurized grass-fed milk would offer similar benefits? Um, we're getting close on time, and so I, I can't... Um, I'll have to be kind of succinct. This is a very open-ended question. Uh, you know what? For the benefits of real milk, go to realmilk.com <laughs> um, and just just read what you read there. Uh, so, uh, quite a bit of... Not quite a bit, but if you find some really science-y stuff, it was probably written anonymously by me like 15 years ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, be- better nutrient absorption and 
uh, undestroyed whey proteins are the main the main benefits. Uh, better immune function as a result is probably one of the most often claimed benefits from people who use it. Um, better toleration. Uh, I, I feel like it's kind of a invigorating. Like I feel like my energy is lifted from it. Uh, I mean, this sounds a little woo-y, but it, it feels more alive. Like I just feel like it has life force that I don't get from most other foods that I eat. Um, can consuming pasteurized grass-fed milk offer similar benefits? No. I mean, past that it's grass-fed will improve the fat-soluble vitamin content of it. Uh, but no, I, I would not say raw milk um, has that pasteurized milk has the same benefits as raw milk. And, um, and I don't even think raw cheese and yogurt have the same benefits as raw milk. Uh, so I, I, you'll get some of you'll get some of most of what's in milk. You'll get the calcium. You'll get the fat soluble vitamins. Uh, but I think there's a lot of sensitive whey proteins, immunoglobulins, and other stuff that are that are not going to be uh, that you're not getting enzymes, maybe. And there's I don't know what is responsible for this life force uh, thing, but I you're not going to get that from pasteurized milk. Thank you, anonymous, for your question. Peggy Laughlin. Peggy Laughlin says, Hi, Dr. Chris. Can you discuss the ancestral supplements more specifically for mildly hypothyroid? How would one take, adjust, etc.? I'm sorry. You're going to have to be way more specific than that. I don't... I mean, I don't know what you mean by discuss and I don't know what you're taking for thyroid or why thyroid would adjust what you're taking and so on. Um, maybe if you could rephrase that in a more specific way. Pamela says, perhaps you were looking for Heidelberg test earlier for gastric acid test. That, that's it. That's exactly what I was looking for. Thank you. Heidelberg test is the name of that uh, sensor you swallow for stomach acid testing. Anonymous says, what are reasons for an increase in the need to urinate in the middle of the night? Several years ago, I used to never need to get up in the middle of the night to urinate. Now I feel I need to, and I think I have similar water intake. Rather than answering that, I will direct you to my YouTube video, How to Stop Waking Up to Pee. Uh, that has everything I know about how to stop waking up in the middle of the night to pee. So go, go on YouTube and search... Master John, how to stop waking up to pee. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Anonymous uh, says, any nutritional suggestions to combat Agent Orange ingredient in Weed Be Gone that I reread causes prostate cancer and glyphosate and any other chemicals in Roundup, if you happen to know, we do magnesium glyphosate. So, can you, I mean, clarify whether you're using this stuff? Because 
uh, in no way whatsoever would I suggest that you use the stuff and then try to compensate with nutrition rather than getting rid of it. Um, I mean, just don't use weed killer would be like my number one health tip. <laughs> like, stay the hell away from it. Um, that would be my first tip. Uh, I don't know anything about weed be gone. So I don't, I don't know anything about the mechanism. I can't say anything about that. Anything I know about glyphosate comes from Stephanie Seneff. So I would defer to what she's written about that. She has a book, Toxic Legacy. I've interviewed her. She's written a bunch of stuff and given many interviews and talks. Um, in theory, glycine could protect against it, but you're, but I wouldn't rely on that. I would reduce my exposure to it as much as possible. So I wouldn't. Eat anything that. Uh, Pegu says, "Hell no, I'm not using it. Having trouble avoiding it, in Tennessee. Oh, I see. So, I mean, number one thing would just be like purge your your food supply with anything that might have it, and um, you know. But if it's environmental and you can't and you can't avoid it." Uh, I don't know. I mean, glycine is probably the number one thing that could protect against it, but uh, but I, I don't know if glycine is... It's not going to protect against it as well as avoiding it. So, um, I don't know. More, more glycine. Uh, but I would defer to Stephanie Seneff. I, I'm sure she has other tips. I know when I interviewed her, she had some interesting uh, re interactions that she was talking about with deuterium. But that's sort of like the secondary effects of glyphosate. Like it might be poisoning these enzymes, and therefore you need, you would be bad at de deuterating stuff and benefit more by de getting de deuterium depleted water, which is sort of expensive compared to not. You know, to, compared to avoiding glyphosate, um, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry that I don't have better answers than that. But uh, you, you say you're using magnesium glyph, uh, magnesium glycinate. <laughs> I see you made a typo. Magnesium glyphosate. Um, I mean, you could use more glycine than that. Uh, deuterium depleted water. So. That interview is now on my Rumble page because YouTube took it down. Uh, but if you go to, if you just go to ChrisMasterJohnPhD.com and search for Stephanie Senef, you'll find it. And um, she talks about, she explains there. But you know, briefly, glyphosate poisons a bunch of poisons a bunch of enzymes, and they do de deuterate. And deuterium is bad for your mitochondria, uh, and so you can get deuterium depleted water, um, which you, which you know. Filtering is not doing, uh, but I'm not an expert in this, so I don't want to keep going on about it. But you know, check out Stephanie Seneff's work and 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 follow up by reading more of her stuff. Uh, thank you, Peggy, for your question. Anonymous says, in your COVID nineteen and vitamin D guide, you recommend low dosing with vitamin D. How do you ensure that you're not bringing yourself into hypercalcemia when you're load dosing? If you're someone who has experienced hypercalcemia from high dose vitamin D supplementation in the past, 
we look at biologically active sum of vitamin D and calcitriol levels, what would be the optimal sum of numbers that you would aim for, for example, 100? Or would you optimize just for PTH being maximally suppressed, as you mentioned in your book? Um, first of all, if you have a history of hypercalcemia in response to vitamin D, don't, don't do the loading dose. Um, you know, work on doing some more testing around what are the conditions that are required to raise the hypercalcemia in response to vitamin D. And in the meantime, while you're figuring that out, stay within the range that is known to not cause hypercalcemia. And then second of all, I don't know what the optimal range for the sum of vitamin D and calcitriol would be. But it would probably be something like 60 to 100 or something like that. And I would want to see that tested. I think testing it against PTH suppression would be would be great. But PTH suppression is is currently maximal PTH suppression is currently my gold standard for for testing vitamin D status because now you are looking at your body's uh decision and your your parathyroid gland they uh they take measurements of your serum calcium like in many times in a second. And you might test these things once every three months, you know. So they're they your parathyroid glands have way more information than you do, and so I would listen to them by looking at whether PTH is maxim, maximally suppressed. Thank you, anonymous, for your question. Anonymous says, and uh, I guess we can we might be able to take another question if you get it in quickly, um, but we'll cut off questions soon because we have nine minutes left, and there's three left in the queue. So Anonymous says, all from Anonymous. Anonymous says, hi, Chris. About to give up nutrition and kill myself via McDonald's. That's that's morbid. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, extreme CFS, depression, anxiety, brain fog. Been at this for 30 plus years. Don't even have the brain capacity or energy to do any more testing. Do you have any magic bullet ideas or do you recommend a hospital retreat place doctor or wizard I could go to for help? Anything mainstream will result in being drugged up again. As you know, I'm out of ideas and ability to help myself. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm sorry to hear that you're suffering, but that that is... Um, I don't really know that much about your situation from what you said. Um, I mean, my first gut instinct is that if you feel it kind of sounds like you feel like anhedonic you didn't say that but if your first instinct is you want mcdonald's i don't know if that was sarcasm by just saying that nutrition has been so useless for you that you might as well eat mcdonald's or if it was uh i hate my diet so much that i want mcdonald's or or otherwise I otherwise I would want to kill myself more quickly than I would by eating McDonald's for 30 years. I, I, if if that's what you meant, then I think maybe you should eat some McDonald's. Honestly, like I do, I because I I do think that um, uh, I, I I think that 
I actually think that I fall into the category of someone who needs um, a certain level of hyper palatable food to to feel like um, basic to feel energy, and I, I think I I I probably run low in dopamine, and that sometimes I need the dopamine spike of hyper palatable food in order to have uh, normal. Not even just normal mental health, but normal energy levels. I noticed a couple of years ago that um, if I was out, if I was out walking and I I just decided to eat like a baked good from a cafe, which I normally would not eat, you know, because it's it, they don't make baked goods very very well. That I would just have this amazing surge of energy that could not be explained on the carbohydrate content alone. Um, <clears throat> And so I, you know, just reasoning through it, I think it was from the dopamine spike. And so I, I do think that, uh, you know, if you, if, if that is, I realize I might be misinterpreting you, but if that is a, a feeling that you had that, that your diet sucks and you just, you envy someone who can eat McDonald's because it would make you happier than you are now. If that's what you're feeling, then I, I do think that you, um, should take a break from any restrictive dieting. And uh, it, by the way, I, I don't want this to come across as managing your case because, you know, obviously I'm not a doctor. You're not my patient. There's a lot that I don't know. And I, I don't want to, um, I mean, please, please take this as, as not as direct uh, treatment advice, but as uh, some things to think about. Um, but, you know, in an, in a educational sort of suggesting possibilities, right? But um, but I do think that it's it's quite possible that if 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 you are suffering from anhedonia as part of the depression and brain fog, and I do think sometimes brain fog and fatigue can be direct results of um of like low dopamine function that are driven by just sort of like not seeing the value of it's like subconsciously your brain is not seeing the value of revving up your system and that's because it doesn't have dopamine enough dopamine driving input and so you know the the short way to fix that is to eat some McDonald's and the, the longer or medium term way to do that is to go to Whole Foods and go to the bakery and eat some cake. Uh, or, you know, just get, get some healthy junk food that is not the bottom of the barrel like McDonald's is, but is, is, is still, you know, someone put effort into Using organic ingredients and maybe unrefined sweeteners, but still made a baked good. Uh, so try, you know, try to find a healthy version of those things. Allow yourself to relax and gain a little weight or whatever, and just see if that boosts your mood up would be one thing. And then, but then, you know, I, I don't know what you've done. And so I don't know. Um, I don't know what you've done for testing, and so I do, I just don't know what might be reinventing the wheel versus helping. Um, 
But the first thing I would be looking at would be a strategy and genetic panel, a Genova methylation, a Genova ion panel plus 40. Um, and I would, I would uh, spend time with your family first, you know, provide or whoever most, you know, whoever you have a be- the best relationship with that, that cares for you. Um, it sounds like you feel a little overburdened. And so I would, I would find some people that don't mind sharing the burden a little bit, uh, you know, just, just for now so you can feel better. Um, and you probably, you probably need a vacation. And so, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not connected to retreat centers for stuff like this. And so I don't, I don't know. I don't have specific suggestions, but I don't know, hope, hopefully as brainstorming, that helps you think through some things. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. All right. Last two questions from Anonymous. Anonymous says, can you talk about where to start nutritional supplements for brain health and cognitive issues? And do you know why taking fish oil or omega-3 supplements might cause no- nosebleeds? Is there another way to get the same benefits from one gets from fish oil? Uh, yeah. Omega-3 fatty acids are going to cause nosebleeds because they thin the blood. And they thin the blood by the EPA inhibiting arachidonic acid metabolism. It's possible if you use a lower dose and eat more eggs and liver that that will balance out. Uh Nutritional supplements for brain health and cognitive issues. I mean, that's, that's way too big of a, a topic. I would direct you to my nutrition and neuroscience four part podcast, which is basically five or six hours of me monologuing on nutrition and neuroscience. Uh, but you know, there's brainstorming from that podcast and there's testing. And like I said before, you know, if you have cognitive issues that are hard to figure out, especially if they include depression, anxiety, brain fog, that I think strategy genetic panel, genova methylation panel, and genova ion panel plus 40 is where to start for testing. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Last question of the day. Anonymous says, in your book, why is the recommendation to supplement K2 when supplementing with vitamin E rather than supplement with vitamin K? K2 is K. I guess you mean K1? Anonymous goes on, I'm assuming it's because vitamin K is more easily gotten through foods, whereas K2 is not. Uh, I think you keep saying vitamin K. I think you mean vitamin K1 because vitamin K1 and K2 are both vitamin K. Anonymous goes on, I'm also wondering, is there a daily requirement for vitamin K2 besides balancing recommendations you have with vitamin E? Uh... Yeah. So you want one or 200 micrograms per day of vitamin K2. And I'm pretty sure that's in... Um, not sure what you mean the book. I'm not sure if you're talking about the cheat sheet or you're talking about the cliff notes or you're talking about the vitamins and minerals one-on-one class. Pretty sure K2 recommendation is in the cliff notes and the class. Uh, and it's definitely in the vitamin K2 resource at chrismasterjumpphd.com slash K2. Um, yes, it is true that K1 is very easily gotten from foods if you eat, 
uh, I mean, if you just eat vegetables, you're going to get so much K1. If you just eat like a moderate amount of green vegetables, you're going to, you're going to be swimming in piles of K1. Whereas it's, it's pretty hard to put together K2 if you don't tend to eat the narrow range of foods that are high in K2. Um, But yeah, that's why. Um, it is. It is also true that MK4 is turned over more easily than K1 or MK7, and that if you're increasing the turnover with other fat-soluble vitamins, you are disproportionately going to turn over more K- MK4. And so it, it it does kind of make sense to to get some MK4 specifically. All right. Hope that helps. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. And that is it for the questions tonight. Thank you, everyone, for a wonderful Q&A. Um, I'll get the recording out probably in the next day or so, the transcript out in the next few days, um, the video up in the next couple of days, and hopefully the maybe tonight I'll get the, ne- the uh, next Q&A session date out. So thank you very much everyone for a wonderful night and have a great night. See you later.